0: Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday the 4th of August. I'm Tom Tilly and I'm joined by Annika Good G'day, Annika. Morning, Tom. It's almost five months since the coronavirus was declared a pandemic. Can you believe it?
1: It feels like a lifetime, Tom. But today we're going to put some of your burning questions to Dr Norman Swan and take a look where we're at with this pandemic and when it's going to end.
2: The bad news for everybody listening, no matter where you are in Australia, is we're just at the beginning of this.
0: Yeah, very grim but very useful information coming up on the briefing. First, let's get into the other big headlines of the day.
1: The number of Victorians pushed out of work by COVID will double by the end of the week as thousands of non-essential businesses shut down.
0: We estimate we've got about 500,000 people who are working from home. Uh, we know that there's about a quarter of a million people that have been stood down in one form or another, and this will add a further 250,000. That is essentially a million workers who are not travelling to and from work every day. That's the Premier, Dan Andrews, and he says on top of that, around a million students and teachers will be at home too. As part of the stage four changes, businesses are being split into three categories with essentials like supermarkets, pharmacies, bottle shops, banks and post offices will stay fully open. There are a number of other industries and sectors that will need to close. So from 11.59pm this Wednesday, retail will close, some manufacturing will close, some admin will close.
1: The Prime Minister acknowledged many Victorians will actually be at breaking point with these new measures. That was while announcing a $1,500 pandemic disaster payment for workers with no sick leave who need to self-isolate.
0: Across Victoria, many today, frankly, would have reached breaking point, trying to come to terms with what has happened in their state. The Prime Minister there, and it's a very tough situation for Victorians right now, especially after they'd already been in lockdown for several weeks and to see case numbers continuing to go up. There was some heartening research that came out yesterday, though, from the Medical Journal of Australia that found that Victoria's response to this second wave has actually averted uh, somewhere between 9,000 and 37,000 cases just in the last month. Now, so far, Victoria's had 11,000 cases. So if you had another nine or 30,000 on top of that, they would have been in an even more disastrous situation.
1: Yeah, the Chief Health Minister down there actually acknowledged yesterday that they've managed to get it at a plateau. Stop that curve. We all know about that curve not going up. That's a good sign, but they just can't get it to go down. So hopefully these new measures help that.
0: And the Australian property market continues to take a hammering from COVID, falling for the third month in a row.
1: Nationally, prices were down 0.6% in July. The biggest fall was in Melbourne, where prices fell 1.2% last month. Sydney saw a drop of 0.9%.
0: Yeah, and in the last quarter, the value of Sydney property fell 2.1% and Melbourne has dipped 3.2%. But you've got to take that in the longer term context. Um, Despite those recent falls, Melbourne house prices are still 8.9% higher than a year ago. Sydney values are still up by 13% over the last year. So for young people watching these prices fall, Annika, it's good news, but still house prices have been going up for years.
1: As someone that's in the property market, look, it's good to just see the heat taken out of it. We were Mm. trying to buy a house at the start of the year and They just went up and up and up, sort of week on week. So it will help some property buyers. And interesting to see that Canberra and Adelaide prices have actually continued to go up throughout the coronavirus.
0: So are you sitting on the sidelines now just licking your lips?
1: (laughs) Canberra prices are going up and Melbourne are going down. That's where I want to buy. (laughs) There's been a big spike in the illegal importation of a Chinese herb touted as a coronavirus cure. Ephedra has been recommended by Chinese health authorities but is a banned substance here because it can have serious side effects and can also be used to manufacture ice.
0: Yeah, in the first three months of the year, the Australian Border Force authorities picked up two kilograms of ephedra, but in May and June alone, they found 66 kilograms. So it's a massive increase. They also seized 26,000 hydroxychloroquine tablets they are the ones that Donald Trump was taking. So they've been pretty busy at Border Force, Annika.
1: Yeah, and if the fines don't turn you off from ephedra, the side effects might high blood pressure, heart attacks, muscle disorders, seizures, strokes, death. Guys, don't import this stuff.
0: All right, coming up in a moment, Dr Norman Swan will be joining us on The Briefing. Good evening and welcome. Joining me in the studio tonight, he's the doctor turned medical journalist that Australia has turned to, Dr Norman Swan. That was Q&A in March 23 and it feels like only in a pandemic could a doctor become a celebrity. (laughs)
1: Yeah, look, not quite a celebrity, but when the coronavirus pandemic first took hold back in March, one of the most prominent voices explaining what was happening was the ABC's Dr Norman Swan.
2: SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is new to humans almost certainly having spread directly or indirectly from bats. People weren't trusting the information they were getting, rightly or wrongly, and were desperate. So
0: Dr Norman Swan is a medical doctor and a journalist and has become one of the most trusted voices in the country when it comes to the coronavirus.
1: Now that it's almost five months since the World Health Organisation declared the pandemic and Melbourne's gone into stage four lockdowns, Norman Swan is with us to answer your burning questions about when this is going to end.
0: Dr. Norman Swan, we want to start with a bit of a, a personal question for you, because before the pandemic, um, there would have been a lot of Australians who might not have known who you are if they weren't big um, radio national listeners or, or followers of the ABC. But in March, you became one of the main sources of COVID information. Did you feel there was a bit of an information vacuum at that point? And did you feel a sense of responsibility? And, and from that point, did the information from the government improve?
2: Uh, I sensed it. Um, and there were things that I knew could have been said that weren't being said. Going along with that, there is an enormous responsibility to be careful about what you say, correct errors, and when something has been published as a large number of papers have without peer review properly checked, mm. um, if I'm gonna quote from them, for people to know that I'm quoting from a paper that might never see the light of day because it was uh, it never, it never passed muster. So there's lots, yeah, it's a huge sense of responsibility. And I kind of only to realize that after a week or two and the CoronaCast podcast went nuts in terms of numbers, Yeah, somebody asked a question about swimming pools. And I said well, the problem with swimming pools is the crowds around swimming pools, not necessarily the swimming pool itself. I got feedback saying people were closing swimming pools because of what I'd said. Wow. I, I didn't say close a swimming pool. you just got to be very careful what you say.
0: Did the government response Im- improve and how long did it take before you felt like they were doing enough in terms of spreading the right information and analysis?
2: It was really bad during March. The worst, the worst week was the week of the Grand Prix. Uh, that week, a quarter of a million people were going to be going to the Grand Prix. 14,000 were going to be turning up at a basketball match in Western Australia. Tens of thousands going to a football game that the Prime Minister was going to go to on the Saturday that was a really bad week because people were being told they've we got to start socially distancing and be careful, et cetera, and yet our leaders were going to go to these crowded events. But the following week, I think they really got their act together and improved a lot. But it's still not entirely transparent. And I think there are still issues around the expert opinion that the Commonwealth is receiving and acting on very slow to act on masks because the Expert Committee on Infection Control was down on masks, and they've been down on this thing called aerosol spread, which is clearly a major way this virus spreads, which is into micro droplets. You know, if you were sitting in front of me as I speak, micro droplets are being exhaled, and if I had the virus, the virus would be in those micro droplets, and they hover in the air, and they can go, metres in a very short space of time. And the longer you're in an environment where you've got poor ventilation and somebody else has got the virus, you can pick it up. And that's how you get this restaurant spread, bar spread.
1: Now, Norman, people are obviously still desperate for information. We're five months into this and it doesn't look like the numbers are going down. So we have a few questions I'd like to put to you from some of our listeners. Olivia asks about the numbers in Melbourne. Uh, some of them have been devastating more than the daily figures we're seeing in the UK. And she asks, until we find a vaccine, is this what we're going to continue to see? Or do you think the measures they're putting in will bring the numbers down?
2: Let me give the bad news start. start I'll go to the good news. <laughs> oh I'll flip it on its head. <laughs> the bad news for everybody listening, no matter where you are in Australia, is we're just at the beginning of this. I mean, I know that it feels like three years since this began, even though, as you said, Tom, it's only a few months since the WHO declared a pandemic. We're just at the beginning. What's happened in Victoria could happen in New South Wales, Queensland, anywhere around the country. Queensland, for example, uh, are not socially distancing, and they are a tinderbox waiting to happen if coronavirus lands, as it has. So that's why they're so frightened. Aged care the problems in private aged care are national. So Commonwealth responsibility and huge problems. And what you've seen in Victoria could happen anywhere in Australia, because we have not prepared aged care, private aged care for COVID-19. So that's the bad news is that we're, this could have, we're at the beginning and it's a marathon. The good news is that the thing that does work is extreme lockdown. And probably you could criticize the Victorian government for not acting earlier, particularly on masks, Yes, it will work, but it will work slowly. But this is the one thing that does work, is extreme lockdown. New Zealand went to this level of of lockdown at 90 cases a day, nine zero. We're going to this lockdown at between 600 and 700 cases a day, where there's a backlog of 3,500 cases under investigation. When you say cases, these are people, 700 people. You don't know where they caught the virus from they've known for a long time that they don't know where people have got the virus from and that's what's really scaring them because you don't know how many people are out there spreading the virus so it will turn around because this is the only way to control that unknown spread is to keep people at home and not mix but how long that takes to turn around it took at 90 cases a day it took new zealand about a month or so to get it under control At 600 cases 700 unknown spread it's probably going to take longer. Every day you delay is a week at the other end.
1: You touched on it a little bit there, but one of our listeners, Easy, says that, you know, there are cases in New South Wales, and as you said, there's also cases in Queensland. Could that be getting much worse and we're just not aware because we're not testing as much?
2: People talk about asymptomatic spread, but it's probably more accurate to talk about undocumented cases. So you've got a group of people in the community who are not malicious, but they've either got no symptoms or very mild symptoms. they might just have a red eye, they might just have a bit of a headache, they might just have a bit of diarrhea. And they think, well, that's not a COVID symptom. And in fact, when you look at the case definition in Victoria, red eye, headache, diarrhea, are not there as tier one symptoms in COVID-19, yet they are symptoms in COVID-19. And they don't come forward for testing. And in New York, Indiana, states where they've looked for this, it's up to 10 times as many undocumented cases than the ones you're picking up from testing. Now, we are much better at testing than the United States, but it could still be double or four times as many out there. And that's what scares the New South Wales authorities, as it does the Victorians. Their positive rate, which is the key figure, is how many positives you're picking up in your testing is still under 1%. And that's a really good sign. But it's still not a guarantee that you're missing quite a few cases out there.
0: Now that we're almost six months in, what have we learned about the most common situations and scenarios where the virus spreads?
2: Well, it spreads at home. It spreads at family occasions. It spreads at funerals and at weddings where people are hugging and they're close together. But not just that, you could be in the same room. Just imagine that you're, you've got a big extended family and you all turn up and it's a rainy, cold day in Melbourne and you're all in the front room. Even if you're keeping a bit of distance, you can get it through aerosol spread. Um, Workplaces are high risk, like meatworks, abattoirs, cold, wet, people working cheek by jowl, very hard to control, real problem around the world. Aged care are just like cruise ships, uh, particularly private aged care, where you've got poorly trained staff, who've had rudimentary training and infection control. Those are the places that you can get it. Outdoor spread is rare. Surfaces are probably relatively rare. Picking it up from surfaces, not that you should stop disinfecting or washing them down. And the reason you would wear masks outside, um, you don't want to fiddle around with them when you go into the supermarket. If you leave the house, you put them on, so that when you do go inside, you've already got the mask on and you're not fiddling with it. Um, but outside's much less risk, and shopping. So, for example, not that many, not that much spread in shopping malls, but in shops themselves. They have been spread, changing rooms, stuffy environments. If you walk into a stuffy, warm environment, walk out again in this current environment.
0: So given you know, what we've learned about where it spreads and, and where it doesn't, are there ways we can, I guess, ease the pain of those broad measures, knowing more about the specific high-risk
2: places where
0: it's likely to spread?
2: Essentially, the virus still comes out of your respiratory tract and it goes into the air either through coffin droplets or through these micro droplets. So the economic cost of New South Wales going to mandatory masks is pretty small, particularly if you allow people to wear scarves over their faces, and is just an extra bit of steel belting to um, help control it. So maintaining high levels of tests, you've got an outbreak, go to masks, you don't necessarily have to have it for the rest of the year, just until you get things under control. I think that's the way of doing it. But this is a virus that's got no brain, it's a genetic machine, and it's a genetic machine that's programmed for survival, and it will find, if we've got a chink in our armor, it will find it, and it will get through, and it will start spreading, and it will win. This virus is the same in Italy, Spain, Israel, as here, is our behavior is different. And that's what determines whether this virus will spread. We've unfortunately got to change until mass vaccination comes along.
1: Now, Norman, how much do we know about how this virus can affect people after the, I guess, the the (coughs) initial period has gone in in the years and months to come?
2: Some of this is when you've had a viral infection, you can feel really crap for a while afterwards and then it, it, it comes good. And this one will too. Obviously, it affects the lungs to start with. And then it creates an immune reaction and inflammation clotting, which affects organs such as the heart and the kidneys and the brain. And there are widespread effects. And people with some, with quite mild symptoms are finding themselves with those symptoms ongoing. So they weren't in hospital, they weren't in ICU, but they've still got these symptoms and they've been going on for weeks, if not months. This is a serious disease, which death is obviously of a you know, huge concern with Uh, six times the death rate of seasonal flu. But these long-term symptoms, which are just being revealed, are potentially a huge problem. There's a study going on out of St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney looking at these effects in the Australian context but it's a significant public health issue and it's young people as well as older people. So older people might die of this, but younger people are getting these prolonged symptoms and they may have just had mild disease.
1: Now, look, maybe this is a bit of self-interest here because I am trying to plan a wedding next year, but on the weekend, I Googled how other pandemics have ended and I found out that most of them just run out of puff or something after about 18 to 36 months. Can we use that example with the coronavirus or Does our hope really hinge on a vaccine? Without a vaccine, will we be living with this for, say, 10 years?
2: Um, Without a vaccine, we'll be living with it forever. What will happen is that over a period of time, there will be an increasing level of immunity in the community. The problem is how long effective immunity lasts. But what happens usually with, with viral pandemics is the virus gets a bit used to us and we get a bit used to the virus And it becomes more of a seasonal thing and probably not quite as severe. A pandemic turns into epidemic uh, where you get outbreaks uh, now and again and and often the virus becomes milder in its effects as time goes on as it evolves because there's no advantage to the virus to kill lots of people. It's got to actually have fairly mild disease. The ideal viral disease for a virus's point of view is fairly mild disease, high infectivity, doesn't kill a lot of people, and continues to spread and the virus, if a virus was able to feel happy, that would be happiness. Um, And that's what will slowly happen with COVID-19, but it will take a while.
0: That was the ABC's Dr. Norman Swan. And if you want to be part of those interviews, giving us your question ideas, which we can put to the guests, then follow us on Instagram at The Briefing Podcast, and you can be part of the show and also get our news updates. Annika, um, are you actually going to have your wedding next year or are you starting to abandon that idea?
1: Uh, It'll happen in some form, but maybe not the big party I was hoping for.
0: Yeah, maybe save that for your second wedding. (laughs) Tomorrow on The Briefing, the fight to get an Australian woman out of one of the world's worst female prisons. A
2: Podcast One production.